I am reminded, O oh Lord, afresh this morning that we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. And there is perhaps no more vivid and, and wonderful way for us to do that together than to take the Lord's table and to participate in the bread and the cup. And so, Father, we want to offer this to you this morning as true worship. We know, Father, that you must enable us to worship. Our minds are so easily distracted by the cares of this world and the cares of our family. Even here this morning, Father, we will be tempted to think about things that are not helpful to our worship. And so I pray that you would give us a special grace this morning to focus on what truly matters in the Lord Jesus Christ and cause us, because of our time together, to love Jesus more, more than anything else that this life affords, more than anything that our hearts delight in, even the good and lawful things that you provide us Oh, Father, may we love Jesus more. Convict us this morning, Father, of our heart idolatry as we, by your Spirit, discover that there are things that we love more than Christ, more than you, things we are more devoted to. I pray, Father, that you would refresh within us a desire to know you and to worship you and to delight in you by the reading of your word and by private times, secret times of prayer. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would change us thereby and make us true, joyful worshipers of Jesus Christ more than we have been before this day. Oh, Father, do it for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, except I'm not going to take a step forward. I'm actually putting the brakes on, and time is somewhat limited today as we're having the Lord's table. And so I just want to go back. There are some things that um, I wanted to say last week and things that I thought of throughout the week that uh, I thought it would be helpful to share with you from God's Word this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Now, you remember last week I asked you before we finished to be sure that you prepare your hearts for this morning. And I hope you did. I know throughout this week, God, God used last week's message from this text to pierce my own soul and to drive me to the cross, to drive me to prayer, to worship, to glorying in Christ Jesus, to delighting in him, driving me to that place where I can see my own sin clearly and feel a fresh pang in my heart causing me to run to the cross, to fly to Jesus Christ where all of my guilt and sin and shame and anything that keeps me from delighting in the Lord our God and so that I could confess it and, and turn from it. But this is a daily battle. It is for you, it is for me, it is for all of us. Last time in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we concluded that 
in addition to all of the other problems that Paul had to deal with in the church of Corinth as he wrote this letter, there were serious concerns about how the Corinthian believers viewed the Lord's Supper. It seems, if I might take a moment to remind us, it seems that they were at the same time overestimating the power of the Lord's table while underestimating the glory, the significance of the Lord's table. On the one hand, they were overestimating its power by believing that eating the bread and drinking the wine somehow inoculated them from the poisonous effects of their idolatry, from the consequences, both spiritual and otherwise, of their sin. And so for them, it was eat the Lord's Supper and live as you please. And if you think that's far-fetched, it's not. It's not. So we talked about last week and. It's true in the Roman Catholic Church with the Mass. It's true in the Orthodox Church, both Greek and Russian. And it's even true of us. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any point in preaching this. Or Paul even pointing it out to us. Because it is possible for us, even probable, that there are some people in this room today, maybe many, maybe most, who have come because it is your habit of doing so, or because you're looking for a new church. And we welcome you if that's the case. But are you here because you long to eat and drink of the glory of Jesus Christ? Or are we here just to check in with God, thinking that it is our spiritual duty, once fulfilled, gives us license to live as we please the rest of the time? And is that true of our time in the Word in the morning, assuming that you spend time with God in the morning? Are you really spending time with God, or are you just checking off your Bible reading for the day, thinking that it will inoculate me from some of the temptations and some of the poison that I would otherwise experience in my soul by engaging in the things I'm going to do today. That's what was happening in the church of Corinth. They overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper. At the same time, on the other hand, they tended to underestimate the value of the Lord's table. Having reduced it to a kind of magic ritual, they were completely missing out on the spiritual benefits of coming to the Lord's table. You'll remember we spent a significant amount of time last week discussing the word sharers. Now, some of you don't have any context for this, so let's read the text. We're 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's just start with verse 14. And I'm not going to go over the whole text again. Just this one set of verses beginning with verse 14, and 14 is important because it once again establishes idolatry is the theme. He mentions it in verse 7, do not be idolaters. In chapter 8, he hits it seven times, and then now here in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a, what's the word, sharing, If you have the ESV, I think it's participating in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing our participation in the body of Christ? And since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Now, there's something you need to know about the Lord's table. And that may seem obvious and intuitive, but it's so important before I... I say the rest of 
what I think the Lord would have me say to you this morning, that we establish this as a fact. There is no ritual in Christianity that in itself pleases God. There is no ritual that we can participate in wherein just the participation in it somehow makes us pleasing to God. It is true of both ordinances, which are baptism and the Lord's table. When we engage in baptism, you can do the act of baptism and be an unbeliever. And all you get is wet. That's all you get. If you're a believer, that's all you get too. Because what is happening there is it is a picture. Baptism is simply a visible, tangible picture of an invisible, intangible reality that took place in your heart on the day you first believed. Which means there's a spiritual dynamic that happens. Every time a a person comes to know Christ and they enter into the child of God, uh, enter into being a child of God, adopted into God's family by grace through faith. And it's this, that as far as God is concerned, by grace through faith, when Jesus died, the person who put their faith in Christ also died, hence being delivered from their slavery to sin. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, the believer also rose again from the dead to new life. Now, does that happen in baptism? The answer is no. Baptism is a visible picture, a symbol of a spiritual reality that took place in the heart by a miracle of the Holy Spirit that no man can see, but is pictured for us in the ordinance or in the sacrament of baptism. The same thing is true of the Lord's table. There's nothing magic going on here. The wine is wine, and it's not even wine. It just, it just doesn't sound right to say juice. But that's all it is. It's grape juice. And the bread is bread. Yes, we use matzah because it, you know, it's more Jewish, and it kind of gives us some kind of connection to the original event when Jesus established the Lord's table. But it's bread, it's a cracker. It's a cracker and it's juice. That's all it is. But what it is, what makes it special is not the event itself. It's not the, the glittering uh, uh, um, pans or whatever those things are called that we use or the holders with the little cross on top. That, the little cross doesn't make it more holy. They're just containers. And the white tablecloth, you know what the white tablecloth is? It's a tablecloth. That's all it is. So why is it special to us? Oh, now that's a great question. And that's what the rest of this message is about. Why? Why Why should we even care if it really is just a juice and cracker? What does it mean to be a sharer in Christ's blood and body, which is what the Lord's table symbolizes? What does it mean to be a sharer in Christ's blood and body? It means that we share in all of the benefits that were purchased for us on the day that Jesus was crushed by his father on the cross to atone for my sin. My sin. 
It means that we are beneficiaries of all of the blessings that were purchased for us, uh, for us when he offered himself as substitute beneath the crushing wrath of the judgment of God for sins that I committed and he did not. You see, upon the cross, Jesus accomplished some things on our behalf. Atonement, full atonement, can it be? We sang that this morning. Did we sing that in this service or will it be at the end? We'll sing about the atonement at the the end. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. You understand the atonement that all of my sin was laid on him. All of his righteousness was accredited to my account. The atonement is mine. That's real, but it's invisible. All of my guilt is removed. It's real, but it's invisible. All of my sin has been forgiven. It's real, but it's invisible. My peace has been made with God. I have been reconciled with God. It's real, but it's invisible. And I think this is the most precious of all of them. Fellowship between God and sinners like me was purchased and can never be taken away from me forever. And the only thing that can, that can interrupt my fellowship with God is one thing. You know what it is? My sin. My sin. Or my idolatry. I know we've talked about idolatry for weeks now. I really want to get that concept in your mind. These are not mistakes. These are not addictions. They are not diseases. Sin is the poison that has killed every man who's ever lived. And by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we who were once dead in our transgressions and sins, have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Alive to what? Alive to God. We can now fellowship with God. We can now, here's the word, commune with God. I remember growing up in the church that I went to when I was a little boy, Shady Rest Bible Fellowship out in the country of New Jersey. You say, is there really country in New Jersey? There was when I was there. Who knows? Um, but I remember they kept referring to this thing as communion. And I, I always wondered, what does that mean, communion? And then when I understood the word, it just confused me all the more because I don't, I'm not sensing any communion here. I mean, what is this about? I, I eat the bread and I drink the wine and, you know, we did the ritual. How is that communion? But follow with me. Eating the bread and drinking the wine is not communion. Eating the bread and drinking the wine is that invitation, that reminder to us that everything has been done to purchase your communion with God. There's no reason why you can't commune with God today, right now, 
And even as we are taking the Lord's table to commune with God, but it must be in conjunction with reminding your heart about the invisible realities that God has accomplished in Christ on the cross. He's purchased everything for us. Jesus performed this unfathomably gracious act of mercy and grace on behalf of sinners like us. And the almighty God of the universe who once stood over us with a sword in his hand as terrifying judge now speaks to me and to you like a tender, gracious, loving father. You say, I have no concept of that. I didn't have a dad like that. Who cares? Get over it. You have God. You have God. Get over the impression that your father gave you. He was imperfect, and so are you. He was sinful, so are you. Get over it. You want to know what God is like? Don't study your father. Study God. Study Jesus. Study this book. God loves you. And he is actually inviting you into joyful fellowship and communion with himself. And the cracker and the juice, all they do is they stand before us, reminding us of what God, God's word says. Come, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find Rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, all who are thirsty, and drink of the water that I shall give, and you will never thirst again. Come and eat the bread that I give, the bread of eternal life, and you will be satisfied forever. That's what the Lord's table calls us to do. It's not just about eating and drinking it's about worship. It's about taking advantage of all of the privileges that God purchased for us through the cross. And the Greek word here for sharing is very telling and helpful and really what, me, what started me down this road of understanding this text because the word for sharing is koinonia. It is fellowship. We are fellowshippers in the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not only about receiving legal pardon for our sins against God. It is far more than that. Sharing in Jesus' sacrifice is something, listen to me, it's something personal. It's something intimate. It's something that is relational. Sharing in the body and blood of Jesus is not something that we only do when the Lord's table is served. It is something, beloved, listen to me, listen to me. Can you just look at me for just a second? I know it's hard to concentrate. It's warm in here, whatever. But listen to me. What Jesus purchased for us on the cross in terms of our ability to commune with him is not something that can only happen once every other month when we come to the Lord's table. It's something that should happen today. And tomorrow morning when you get up and tomorrow morning at break and at lunch and at break and when you come home and when you do family worship and before you go to bed and the first thing you do when you get up in the morning or anywhere you are, 
any time of day, the door is open. And that passage in Revelation chapter 2 is not necessarily a salvation passage. When the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and fellowship with him. You know what the amazing thing is? The Lord's not talking to unbelievers there. You know who he's talking to? The church. (laughs) Standing outside the church. I'm outside. Will you let me in? You're singing the great songs, preaching fine sermons. You're enjoying one another. Please let me in. Fellowship with me. I did everything that's necessary to purchase it for your joy and for the glory of God. You see, our our hearts are factories of desire. We just need to know this. We need to, this is a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of man. Our hearts are factories of desires. We're always desiring something. Our souls want and need and long and crave. And God designed it to be that way. God designed us to be dependent beings. Even Adam and Eve were dependent creatures. They could not live without God. They were perfect, yes, but not independent and not complete without one another and without God, especially without God. And so in Genesis 1 through 3, you you see God keeps stepping back into their lives. Every time he showed up, he, he told them something they needed to know that they did not know before then. He had to explain it to them, not because they had sinned yet, but because they were dependent on him. They were dependent on his truth, and he had to deliver it. He didn't install it into their hard drive and, and so that they were born with all the knowledge they needed. It just wasn't that way. He had to reveal it from outside of them. And so he created them to be dependent. He created all of us to be dependent beings who cannot find everything that we need inside of self. We have to look outside of ourselves to find what what truly completes and satisfies our souls. Here's a simpler way to say it. God designed us to need God. God designed us to need God. He designed us in such a way that we would need the truth of God, that we would need the love of God, that we would need the fellowship of God. And without those things, we could not be complete. We could not be satisfied. We could not be fulfilled, as Jesus says. He designed us to need all of these things. And then when man sinned, there were added needs. We now needed Christ, God's righteousness, which he provided in Christ. And we needed God's forgiveness, which is why Jesus died, his body broken and his blood spilt. We need these things, and they are all things that we simply cannot find in ourselves. But here's the thing. You ready for this? Here's the thing. Here's here's the salient point. 
We were designed to need God and all that he has for us and all that he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. We need God. God designed us to be needy of God. But whenever we choose not to seek our satisfaction, our joy, our fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate joy, that sustaining satisfaction of life, whenever we Whenever we choose not to pursue those things in God, guess what happens? Our hearts begin seeking them elsewhere. And we find counterfeit gods, counterfeit suppliers of what we think we need. We look to fame or pleasure or money or adrenaline, or sex, or acceptance, or drugs, or alcohol, or power, or advancement, or possessions, or some other idol that promises falsely to provide what our hearts long for. And as Christians, frankly, we're not exempt from this. To the contrary, if we were honest with ourselves and one another, we would have to confess that there have been days, weeks, even months, perhaps, when our relationship with God was cold, lifeless, routine, no real joy or satisfaction in God, no fellowship, no hunger or thirst for righteousness or his word, his will, his presence. We're quite satisfied without you, God. Thank you very much. We lack personal discipline toward godliness sensitivity towards sin, desire to share the gospel. When your heart goes that cold, you know what? (laughs) There's a problem. I've been there. I've been there. One of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that the Word of God can become your textbook because you're studying it all the time. I mean, after all, Sunday comes around once a week, whether there's a holiday, a birthday, death, resurrection, miracle, whatever. Sunday's coming around, you've got to preach the next infernal sermon. And so the Word of God can become your textbook. And ministry can become your idol. And it's very easy for pastors and anybody in ministry, counselors, anybody in ministry, to go through the daily routine of getting all your stuff done, doing the job, helping people, Serving the Lord, quote unquote, when in reality you haven't fellowshiped with him or delighted in him in days or weeks. The only people who struggle with this more than pastors is seminary students because they get graded on their study of the word of God. And that's a good thing, but also dangerous. We need to be careful of this, beloved, because you may not be a pastor or a seminary student, but you're subject to the same infirmities. You can easily be distracted by whatever it is God has given you to do. We're not exempt from this as believers. We can get to a place where there really is no joy and satisfaction in God, no fellowship, no hunger and thirst for his word or his presence. And truth be known, in those times, if we were really honest, we would also probably have to admit that we ate more than we should have 
eaten in those times, and we spent more money than we should have spent in those seasons, and we watched more TV, and we struggled with lust or complained or fought with one another more and accomplished less for the kingdom of God than we ever would be comfortable admitting because our hearts are on the search for something to replace God. And you know what the Lord's table does? It calls us home. It calls us home. Like the prodigal son. Listen, I hope you see yourself in the prodigal son every day of your life. (laughs) He came to his senses and he said, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I out here with these pigs? I let my heart go in search of something to replace God, and now I'm with the pigs. This is what I will do. I will return to my father, and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And when he did that, the father cut him off right there. And he said, no more. Bring out the robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, kill the calf. We're having a party tonight. That's the way God always responds. That's the way God always responds when someone truly repents, whether they're a believer or whether they're coming to Christ for the first time. It's amazing. Now, us human fathers, we don't do that. Not like we should. It's real easy to bear a grudge or to be slow in restoring someone who has offended us. Not God. Not God. He's slow to chide and swift to bless. He loves to bless us because as we enjoy the blessings that he has purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ, he is greatly glorified. Greatly glorified. Or when we let our hearts out to wander away from the glory of God, and we get ourselves in trouble. For whatever reason, we turn our backs on the magnificent benefits that God purchased for us when he crushed his son on the cross. But no matter how we look, no matter what we let our hearts out to, there is nothing for the believer that can replace his God. When you turn your back on God, there's nothing but a hole left in your heart. And only communion with Christ and forgiveness of sins can replace. I've been reading through the Psalms these past several weeks, and the other day I discovered that David was very familiar with this whole dynamic. Sinning, letting his heart out to other things, realizing what a fool he had been, repenting, coming back, Finding in God a feast, a fountain, a rock, a a mighty tower, a mighty fortress, a strong tower, and all of these things that God says that he is for us that is represented in the Lord's table. And so I would like for you to turn with me back, and we're just going to flip through some psalms here. It was amazing to me as I looked at this this week, And I was just having my quiet time. I was just spending time with God and his word. And I got flipping through and and saw this pattern. And I just want to share it with you as we wrap up. 
before we take the Lord's table. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7. Let me just read this. David starts off with talking about how blessed it is to be forgiven, and then what a miserable existence it is to live in your sin and not deal with it. And so we start, Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now contrast with verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You ever felt that? God, what's wrong? I just feel like you're, you're, you're crushing me. For day and night your heavy was, hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, my strength, my vigor was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Now look what he did. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, like the, like the prodigal son, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in the time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are, now notice, delight on, delighting in the Lord. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Psalm 33, verses 18 through 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Loving kindness is such a, an amazing word in the Old Testament. It's chesed. It means it's the Old Testament version of grace. On those who hope in his loving kindness, verse 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart rejoices, where? In him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, there it is again, your grace, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Chapter 34, verse 8, and there's more in this chapter, but verse 8, such a sweet, precious verse. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse, uh, chapter 36, verses 5 through 9. Your loving kindness, O oh Lord, there it is again, grace, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. You see David delighting in the glorious attributes of God and participating, sharing them, sharing in them for his own joy, his own good. Verse seven, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill. I love how the ESV says this. They feast upon the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink, not of the cup, not of the stream, but of the river of your delights. For with you, 
is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. David just goes from one thing to another, one attribute to another, to another characteristic of God, and says, God, all of these are mine. They're all mine. They're all mine because of your grace, because of your abundance. Oh, God, how I love your word, how I love your person. I love your glory. I love to obey you. I love to be in your house. I love to be with your people. I love to read your word. I love just praying to you and talking to you and journaling in my little book that's going to turn out to be something that's preserved forever in the word of God. It's 37. Look at verses 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Watch this, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. If I do what? If all of my delight is in the Lord. If I love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what happens if I don't do that? Well, that's why he wrote the rest of 37 and 38. He talks about guilt and the conscience and its physical effects upon his body and depression, verse, th- uh, 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 I'm sorry, chapter 39. And then in chapter 42, look at verses 1 and 2. Here's David desiring God like you and I should. As a deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come to appear before God? God, I just want to be with you. I just want to fellowship with you. I want to enjoy your presence. I want to be humbled to the dust, as David Brainerd would say, before you, for therein I find my deepest joy. And look at chapter 43. And from this, I derive the title of this message this morning. Verse 3. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Which is just another way of saying, God, just tell me what to do. I love to do your will. Same as Jesus. Let them bring me to your holy hill. What do you do with the holy hill? You worship. You bow down. You make sacrifices. You pray. And to your dwelling place, I just want to be in your house. It's reminiscent of what David said. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to, in, to dwell in the, uh, the magnificent tents of the wicked. Just make me a doorkeeper. Later, he says, oh, to be a sparrow that I could build my nest on top of a column in your house. And then I will go to the altar of God, verse 4. Watch this. To God, my exceeding joy. God, my exceeding joy. That's the whole point of the Lord's table. It's the point of the Lord's table. What God is saying from the table is this. There's an invisible reality here that we need to be reminded of again and again and again and again and again. And so Jesus established the Lord's table to remind us that God purchased for us something with his blood 
and with his broken body that we are called to enjoy daily for his glory and for our own joy, a joy that will keep our hearts from straying to these idols. How do I know that? I know that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because Paul writes this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table, the table of the Lord and the table of demons. If your heart is fully transfixed on what God did for you on the cross as symbolized in the bread and the cup, there's no way, there is no possibility you can let your heart out to idols. But the same is true the other way around. If you let your heart out to the idols that you cherish and love so much, it's no wonder you have problems worshiping. It's no wonder your prayers are hitting an iron ceiling. It's no wonder that it's been months or weeks or longer since you have enjoyed communion with God. And this isn't the, these aren't the only places that speak to this reality. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it'll be open. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf of bread, gives him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Just ask. It's already been paid for. You just have to ask. He says the same thing in Isaiah 55, like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money, think, searching for idols? Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, he says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Or this, John 7, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his inmost being will flow rivers of water, rivers. There's that term again. I grew up on a river. Imagine it full of the delights of the Lord, full of everything that God purchased for us when Jesus gave his life on the cross. You see, beloved, God has always called his people to find their deepest joy and fullest satisfaction in him. And when Jesus came and allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled, he purchased and secured for us everything we need to live in intimate fellowship in communion with God. But we're just so busy. We're so busy. If you're a child of God, then you've been given the right to share in all the benefits that God purchased when he spilt Jesus' blood and broke Jesus' body. But if you choose to disregard this gift, you will find your heart enticed by every form 
of secret idolatry. On the other hand, if you come to him daily to share, to fellowship, to commune with God through the benefits that you have received through the cross, then you will discover that your soul finds its deepest joy and satisfaction in him. And then the enticements of idolatry will lose its appeal because, as Paul said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. When your heart is continually drinking the water of life and eating the bread of life, the seducing promises of sin lose their appeal. As Thomas Watson said, when the honey is hot, the flies stay away. Keep your heart hot for God. And this morning as we come to the Lord's table, Brent is going to exhort you to control your minds this morning to think deeply about these things and not let your minds wander. If you don't engage, you, your mind will. But as you see the bread coming, realize what it purchased for you. And when you see the cup coming, recall to mind the glory of what it purchased for you and ask yourself, am I fully immersing my soul in the glorious things that God purchased for me when this happened to Jesus. When he was nailed by feet and hands to a cross. When his body was broken and his blood spilt. Or will we just once again take it for granted as a magic spiritual ritual that will gain us something that we pretend it will gain. Oh, beloved, may the Lord's Supper this morning be a, a wonderful time of worship for us all. Father, we pray that you would accomplish that. Convict us all, Lord, of our pursuit of the things that you have promised through other things, through the idols that we cherish and love and would be embarrassed, humiliated, perhaps, if we admitted them to anyone. Well, Father, I pray that you'd grant repentance, again, not as some spiritual ritual or magic formula, but that so through our repentance, our hearts would be purified to receive all that you have promised to give through Jesus, by your word, by your grace, May you be glorified in us, Father, as we find our satisfaction and joy in you, in fellowship with you, in communion with you, which you purchased by Jesus' blood. And we pray all of this by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen.